Father, we thank you that your glory is shining and is present among us and with us. And we confess that we don't always have eyes to see it. So I pray that during this time and these words and your word preached, you would remove scales and that we would see a glory which is currently hidden to us. Your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, during the month of June was uh, my family's vacation time, and in that time we continued our tradition of camping across the West in our pop-up, this time spending almost two weeks in Grand Teton National Park. Um, From the look of social media, it seems like half of us are going to Grand Teton National Park this year, so I was surprised when we didn't see anybody there. Um, It's it's an incredible place, absolutely stunning vista. We only got to see it about half the time because it rained so much while it was raining here. It was was raining there as well, so we made the best of it and and did what you always do when it rains at a national park. Um, You spend a lot of time in the visitor center, Um, and we ended up watching the 30-minute park introductory film. Not once, but twice. We became friends with this film. Riveting, it was not. It's much better to actually see the thing than a video about the thing when you're at the thing. Um, But there was a line in the film that jumped out to me on a a deeper listening. Um, As two folks biked in front of the mountains, the narrator said something like, for some, the connection to Grand Teton National Park is about recreation and rejuvenation. And then the video shifted to an aged, stoic, Native American in full headdress. And he said, for others, it's sacred. For some, the connection to Grand Teton National Park is about recreation and rejuvenation. For others, it's sacred. And it struck me that those two examples had greater resonance than just that park. That in in some rough sense, those represent two of the postures humanity has had towards the natural world, right? For some, uh, what we call nature is just raw material that we can use for our own purposes to fulfill our desires through technology or, or recreation or whatever it is. It's here for us. It's, it's, it's the perspective that that great Disney princess theologian Pocahontas said <laughs> was treating the world as a dead thing you can claim. Or creation can become something so closely tied to God that it can begin to be worshipped as God, right? It's either just material stuff we can mold as we will, which is what the modern West usually thinks of it as and treats it as, or it's this spiritually charged world of enchantment that we mess with at our own risk, like Far Eastern or indigenous religions have typically considered it. Now, most of the Christians I meet, at least in Colorado, live in a confuddled blend of these perspectives. We've all got a little bit of that Western sensibility in us. We all use more water than this region naturally provides. We love our technology that requires huge amounts of mining. We revel in the recreation and beauty that the mountains and the foothills provide. If a trail is closed, we're ticked because it's here for us. But also, if you ask the average Christian in Colorado where they meet God, where they experience the divine. I'm sure many would say scripture, many would say prayer, many would say the Christian community. Nearly everybody would say creation. 
Nearly everybody would say that they encounter God in the outdoors, and that's one reason they're living here. Now, in the midst of that sort of confuddlement and blending of those two perspectives, what, what is still struggled to articulate is what it, exactly it means to meet God in creation. What does it mean to meet God there? How do we know it's actually God we're meeting are there ways that we can be deceived as we meet with God in creation? Are there ways that we can miss the fullness of God's presence in creation and content ourselves with something less than what God has for us? And then in the midst of all that, what does that mean for how we use and live in creation? All those kinds of questions are why over the next six weeks, we're going to take some time to sketch out the Christian picture of the relationship between ourselves, the rest of the creation, and Creator, from Genesis to Revelation. Now, we know here at IEC and the leadership, as we were talking through sermons for this summer, we know that many of us are exploring creation over the summer. Tons of us are doing that right now and aren't in this room. Um, So our prayer is that these sermons would be sort of a, a place of training, that these sermons would give us new lenses that we can take with us as we go to help us see what is really real, what is truly true. Now, as always, these sermons are going to be available on the YouTube page and our website. If you miss a week or two, you can catch them later. Um, But this series also includes something beyond the sermons. If if these leave you wanting more, I want to give you a heads up that a few years ago, we actually taught a 10-hour class at IAC on this topic. Um, that goes much, much, much more in depth than we're going to be able to do in these sermons. These are just sort of a few pieces of that pulled out and focused on. You can find those larger teachings at IAC's YouTube page under classes or in other places. So don't hesitate to ask if some of this makes you curious. Um, In those classes, uh, we covered uh, in depth a robust theology of creation, a spirituality of creation, our mission in creation, also the relationship between science and faith. Because when most people think of a teaching or sermon series on creation, they think inevitably of that conversation between science and faith. And specifically, the question of our origins and what Genesis 1 has to say about it. Now, in the recorded class, we go into detail, detail, detail on science and origins and all the rest. But the key thing to realize for our purposes today is that science is a discipline of knowledge that focuses on the how the mechanisms underlying the created world. When I was trained in in physics and chemistry in my undergrad, uh, I had an offer to go get a PhD in chemistry, but turned it down to go into ministry. But in in that season, that how question was at the forefront of my mind and those I was working with. And it's a fascinating study of of what are the mechanisms, what causes what in the created world. I was learning just this week that ticks, you know, like ticks, like nasty ticks, are actually polarized in electric charge so that they can jump to the electric field of an animal that walks by. This is crazy stuff, and I question God's wisdom on that particular piece. (laughs) How questions are fascinating, but what science cannot do is speak to the why. Saying how something works is not the same as saying what it means or what it's for. You can describe how watch gears work in one of those old-fashioned mechanical watches, but that doesn't tell you why you'd want to wear one. Eustace Scrub in in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series discovers this when he's talking to a creature in that fictional world of Narnia, and he says, well, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. 
And the creature replies to him, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. It's a great distinction. A scientific explanation of mechanisms and causes does not exhaust the meaning of what creation is or what it's here for. It's my conviction that that meaning is what Genesis 1 is really getting at fundamentally. Not as much how the world came to be, but why it came to be. What, in other words, it's, it's all for. No, I, I, I don't say that as a way of just like caving to science. Sometimes scientific understandings are wrong and need to be corrected. Again, we talk more about that in the class. But I say this really as a student of the Scriptures, as one and as a church who's trying to be carefully attuned to what the first readers of the book of Genesis would have heard in Genesis 1. Because it's the original context that helps determine what a text means, not the context we import into it from the 21st century. That's where we start. And for those who first read Genesis 1, the first thing that would have leapt off the page of them was, huh, this kind of sounds like the other creation stories that are around us. Every nation in the ancient Near East had its gods, and most had their own creation stories to go with those gods. The famous Babylonian text, Enuma Elish, is, is, is one example. But in all these kinds of stories that were around them, creation, the created world, emerges out of a conflict. Either a conflict between gods that bursts the world or a conflict within the god itself, some type of deficiency or need that humans are needed to fulfill. So, for example, in Enuma Elish, which was like the Babylonian creation story, uh, the god who ends up becoming the god wages a battle that splits another god in two, and those dismembered parts become the world. And then that god needs servants to make him things, so he creates humans to fulfill his needs. Now, obviously, they aren't aiming at like modern scientific precision in this story in the Enuma Elish, right? They're aiming at, okay, why does the world exist in the first place? And in telling this story, can we say something about how we experience it in the here and now? Right? Creation birthed in violence. Humanity as servants to some bigger picture which they can't even really see. That's what that story tells us about the why. They were aiming to know what kind of God would have made it this way. Because in order to have a why, you have to have a who. It is persons, moral agents who make things with meaning and purpose. If there is no God, if there is no meaning, if there is no, uh, then if there is no God, then there is no meaning. There is no purpose beyond the purpose which we give the world. It, it is just a dead thing we can claim. But the Genesis account wastes no time in asserting that there is very much a who behind it all. Genesis 1, verse 1, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, just from that one phrase, we find out a couple things here if we're going back into their context. First is that there is a God who was before the beginning, that he is an eternal being that stretches back before our understanding of time. We find out that this God created everything, not just part of it. And we find out that he created out of nothing. The word for create is bara. It's only ever used in the book of Genesis or in the Hebrew scriptures to refer to what God creates. Human creating always uses different words, never bara. 
Because God's creating and our creating are of two different kinds. God creates out of nothing. Human creating simply rearranges what has already been created. But as the verses go on, we see more, and and you guys kind of know this, that this, this God was not in conflict with any other God that the earth was not brought forth in violence, that he didn't have any need in himself he's trying to fill. He simply enters the void, the emptiness, the chaos, and he desires to fill it. And he fills it by simply speaking. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's similar to those other stories, but also completely different. This was a God who created just because he wanted to. A God who made things simply by speaking them. A God who was not the world itself, but donated his existence, in a sense, to create a world and then hold it into being because he is the only thing that existed. Now, now, this story shaped radically their view of God compared to their neighbors, and it also shapes ours. Because how many of us are tempted to think of God as a God who is violent or stingy or needy or distant? When we are tempted to think that, the author of Genesis is saying we can simply look out the window at the reckless abundance that is all around us and remember. Because none of this had to be. None of this was required. None of this was God taking the leftovers of some cosmic battle and figuring out, well, what can I do with this? Everything that is made and still held in existence, every, every leaf, every lichen, every one of our lives owes its existence to him. He has given abundantly, profusely, generously just because he wants to. That's the kind of God there is. But saying just because he wanted to only gets us part of the way. Because the question remains, well, why would he want to? Like, did he have a purpose? Did he have a reason? Was there there some thought in his mind of why he wanted to make a world at all? The rest of Genesis 1 sets out to give us that answer, but in a way, again, that that would have made more sense to them uh, than it does to us, at least at a quick glance. And the key to getting into this is is to understand that in Hebrew poetry, meaning is often communicated in structure, in repetition. In Hebrew poetry, what's repeated, what's structured, is often actually the key to meaning. And what's repeated, what's structured in Genesis 1 are two things. The structure of the days, day one, day two, day three, and the declaration on each day that what God had created was good. Let's start with the days. Now, as we get into the days, we need to kind of say and recognize that for some of us from some backgrounds, this might come as a new way of thinking about this. But throughout church history, readers of the scriptures have not consistently believed that the word days has to mean 24 hours. As if scripture were answering the how question by the word day. Some have believed that, but it wasn't until the mid-1900s and then only in sort of a corner of North American Christianity specifically 
that a belief that the creation took exactly six 24-hour days really took hold as like the litmus test for what it meant to be a real Christian or to really believe the scriptures. Okay? That's really new. Augustine and Origen and Aquinas, three of Christianity's greatest teachers, and many more like them, all had a tremendous flexibility with how long creation took. Because they recognized that, that this structure was primarily a poetic framework meant to highlight something a little bit different. You see this kind of structure playing out if you approach it sort of like a poem. On the first three days, you see spaces being created. Day one, the spaces of light and dark. Day two, the spaces of air and sea. Day three, the space of dry land. And then on day four, it's like everything sort of starts over again. And into those spaces are introduced faces in the exact same order. On day four, God makes uh, the different lights to inhabit the light and dark, the sun and the moon. On day five, God makes the birds to fill the sky and the fish to fill the seas. On day six, God makes the animals, then ultimately humans, to fill the dry land. It's this poetic story, first spaces, then faces, first realms, then inhabitants and rulers. Now, could God have made all this in six 24-hour days? Absolutely. That's a, that's a legitimate way of, of reading the text. We go way more into depth in this in the class. But it's not required by the text because it's a first and foremost a poetic structure. Now, if that's the case, why would he have done this, right? Why would we have used the day's framework? What's the point? Well, when the early Israelites would have read Genesis 1, as we said, it would have reminded them of some of those other creation myths like Enuma Elish. But it also would have reminded them of something else. Stories of constructing temples. Stories of kings building homes for the gods to dwell in. See, in the ancient Near East, kings would often build temples for the gods to come and dwell in on earth, kind of to legitimize their reign often. And these temple building accounts would be laid out often in a week-long structure, day one, day two, Day three, day four. So by framing the creation in terms of days, the Israelites would have picked up on, ah, this is why God did all this. He was building something in particular. He was building a temple, a dwelling place, a home. Except instead of just build a, a building within creation. God was making everything into that temple. We get another clue to this from the other repeated piece of the passage, the word good. What does it mean that God created things that were good? Now, it might just mean that created things are not fundamentally evil which is absolutely true. Uh, there is a worldview that has persisted throughout history that decries all matter is bad and all spirit is good. We've got that in our modern day. Uh, there were other seasons in, in history where that was true. Uh, but that wasn't really a big issue in Israel's day when this was being written. And it's not really obvious that the stun or, or starfish or selenium has a moral dimension, right? Like it's good as opposed to like uh, aluminum, that's evil. More likely, God was saying it was good in the sense that it was fitting it was appropriate. It was good for something. We still have that phrase, right? He's saying it's good for my temple. 
It's a good dwelling place for me. Now, what makes a home fitting? What makes a good house? Those of you who have bought a house or an apartment know this. It's when a house reflects you, reflects what's important to you, reflects what you value, how you live, how you work. I'm in a family of six. I have one wife and four little girls. A house with one bathroom would not be good in the Genesis 1 sense. It would not be fitting. It doesn't reflect us. Take it another step. When you walk into somebody's house, you can tell something about who they are, right? You can perceive something about the person from their dwelling. Whether it's decorated or not decorated, all those kinds of things, you can tell something. So if God is making a dwelling that is good, it's a dwelling that's going to reflect his personality, that's going to reflect who he is and what he's about and what he's up to. God is going to make a place that is a fitting home that points everything in creation back to him as the author of it. Now, the good news is that he did not just create this house and then walk away. On the seventh day, he moves in. Genesis 2, verse 2. We heard this read earlier. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. You know, there's a pun happening here in the word resting that's really fun. Everything we know about God from Genesis 1, right? The fact that he can spin stars in the sky with just his word. Um, There wasn't this war happening with some other gods. All that suggests that he, like, didn't get worn out from this. He didn't do six days and he's like, I need a blow. God taking his rest in the biblical language means God taking his seat on his throne to reign and to rule. Psalm 132, you can read it, uses the word rest for God, doing this exact same thing. He's taking his rest and reigning among his people. God sets apart the seventh day to be a day of taking a break for us. Because on the seventh day, God took his throne, took his place of reigning and ruling as the ruler of the cosmos. That's why we can rest, because there is still a God on the throne ruling and reigning even when we can't. See the pun there with rest? God's rest allows us to rest, but it's not the same kind of rest. So on day seven, the culmination of this temple building project, God moves in and takes up residence and makes Heaven is throne and earth his footstool, as Isaiah says later on. Now, there's a lot more to this story. There's, there's how God continues to work in creation. There's our role in creation. It's how we failed in that role, how redemption springs up. We've got five more weeks here, so like, be merciful with the questions, okay? But here at the beginning, we need to ask the Spirit to open our eyes to just this. We dwell in a world that does not belong to us. We dwell in a world that was designed as God's house, that was designed as God's dwelling place, God's temple, and He is still here. Even after the fall, Psalm 104 says that He wears light as a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Friends, He's still here. That means the world around us is not God. We don't need to worship the sun or the moon or the stars. But it's also not just that dead thing we can claim, a world that we can do anything with that we like. 
We don't own it, no matter what the private property deed might be in your filing cabinet. We can't do with it whatever we want, even if the economy pushes us to think about it that way. It's his home, and he designed it to reflect himself. So the first step in living here well is to learn to see him through the details of his house. To learn to see the creator through what has been created. Right? The Tetons and, and the trees down the street and even the weeds growing through the cracks in the pavements are like, oh, I want to get rid of this, are somehow, some way, reflecting the one who made them. Reflecting some aspect of his generosity and abundance and power and beauty and tenacity and danger and so much more. This is why throughout the scriptures you have the authors of scripture using created analogies and then saying, you know this, you see this, that's kind of what God is like. Jesus does this constantly in his ministry. All the time, so much so that we, we, like, we're kind of used to the stories, some of us are, and we don't really pay attention to it, but Jesus in his teaching refers to, deep breath, sparrows, sheep, wolves, goats, oxen, donkeys, foxes, fish, snakes, sea monsters, worms, scorpions, moths, swine, dogs, birds, roosters, salt, figs, grapes, eggs, fruit, oil, wheat, mustard seeds, yeast, nests, fig trees, trees in general, branches, wood, logs, specks, lilies, grass, grain, shrubs, bramble bushes, thorns, thistles, weeds, soils, land, rocky ground, mountains, deserts, dust, gardens, fields, vineyards, light, fire, earth, wind, water, seas, lakes, rivers, rain, floods, stones, rocks, pearls, sand, sun, moon, stars, sky, heaven, clouds, and weather. It's all there. It's like he's saying the father was just throwing this stuff everywhere. <laughs> Pay attention. Open your eyes. Learn to see the physical, the, the spiritual through the physical. Learn to see the world as this living parable, this living illustration of living reflection of the God who is in the midst of all of it. A great first step in doing that is, is whenever you're, you're, you're in a space, like it could be the Tetons or it could be your back porch or it could be that nasty piece of grass growing through the concrete. Look at that portion of creation and say, how does this reflect the God I know in the scriptures? How does this remind me of him? And let your heart and mind launch from the created thing to the spiritual reality underneath it all. Because that's why it's here. Creation is not just malleable matter, and it's not just God himself. It is a sacramental reality. In Christianity, we use the word sacrament to describe a, a visible sign pointing towards an invisible reality. Something, something material that is, uh, that is transparent to the spiritual realm. The most important thing to learn about God's creation isn't how long it took to make. That's important, and it's valuable, and it's interesting, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is learning to see the face of the maker shining through the things he has made. 
It's learning to see the world once again, maybe like some of us did as kids, as enchanted with the presence of God who made it as his dwelling and dwells there still. It's taking the time to wonder in creation and then letting that wonder run out into praise of the creator because that's where it's meant to go. Now that takes practice and it also takes the Holy Spirit because that's a paradigm shift. To be able to do that not just in like the beautiful Grand Teton places but in the ordinary places. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us to see that earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God. Let's pray. Father, I confess, and I know many join me in this, that, that I'm tempted to see you as stingy that I see so often lack instead of abundance. Would you, Father, by your Holy Spirit, transform our hearts, transform our eyes to see the glory in this world you have made? Would you shape us and save us into seeing you where you are constantly coming for us, constantly calling us to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Would you open our hearts to give thanks for the glory of what you have placed us within and the glory that you are here present to us in it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.